Ladies and gentlemen and hockey fans of all ages, welcome back to another exciting episode of the Hockey Fan Chat. I am your host, Randy Dillon. In our latest episode of the Hockey Fan Chat, we talk about the other side from a view of a referee. I am joined by a former referee of the WHL. He's refereed many years, many different levels, and right now he is currently working with Hockey Alberta to help young referees with their fitness and nutrition. Please welcome my guest at this time, Justin Slim. Justin, how's it going? Hey, what's going on, Randy? Not much. How have you been? Oh, really good. We're hanging in there. Oh, that's good. Oh, I appreciate you coming on, Justin. Of course. Justin, thank you so much for joining us on the Hockey Fan Chat. I'm excited to get your opinion on a refereeing. Yeah, man. Working with Alberta Hockey, help developing referees. I'm interested in getting your intake here. But for anyone who comes on the show, we always like to know who's your, do you have a favorite hockey team? Do you have a favorite player you grew up idolizing or watching? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. You know, it's, it's funny because I grew up in Calgary. You know, I've always been a little bit of a Flames fan. Now, I wouldn't say I'm like a diehard Flames fan by any stretch of the imagination. For some reason, I gravitated towards the New Jersey Devils while I was growing up. And there was something about Scott Stevens. I mean, just his, he was big, he was kind of fierce, he had this mean look on his face. I don't know why I was really, really drawn to Scott Stevens. And something about Martin Brodeur, I mean, the best goaltender in the NHL, in the league, in history. And I, like, I'll fight anybody that says otherwise, but, <laughs> you know, I... I really felt that Marty Broder was um, an all-star. I mean, he's just, he's one of the best. He'll go down, you know, in the history books. For some reason, you know, Scott Niedermeyer, would, I mean, that was a really, really good team. I loved watching in the 90s, the early 2000s, the, uh, the New Jersey Devils. More recently, I think I've, I've kind of fallen off the New Jersey Devils. There has been some inconsistency just with kind of what their identity is. So it's been hard to follow a little bit, but uh, I have followed the Flames a little bit more closely just because I'm, you know, I'm in the city and, and I've got the opportunity to go some games every now and again. So yeah, I'd say I'm a mix between those two teams. Well, that is good. No, I could, unfortunately, I thought when I was little, Niedermeyer and Stevens left the Devils. Broder was still there, but the, they were just such, I think, just watching their highlights, even past games, just such mm-hmm. a dominating group oh my on goodness. the back end. And Broder, the way he played even in his late stage in his career, just an incredible goalie. I mm-hmm. think he's the best goalie out there yeah. for sure. And I know there can be debate between Patrick Waugh and him, but I just think hands down at him, especially with everything he's done, all the wins mm-hmm. he got for sure. Now, you refereed for the WHL for about five years. Mm-hmm. I would like to know... How did that kind of come about? How did you get into the whole refereeing idea? Great question. I was no athlete. Let's just start there. And it's important to go back when I was a kid because that's really where the roots started growing. I didn't start playing hockey until I was 12 years old. And anybody that's listening, you know that 12 years old is really late to get into the game. I mean, at that point, you're already in peewee. I mean, I was playing Pee Wee House League, like the bottom, bottom levels. And, and I didn't care. 
you know, I wasn't out there to be in the NHL or anything like that as a player. Why don't but we continue refereeing? I did it because it was a lot I mean, of fun. The problem when you're 12, was, 13, 14 though, years old, 12, telling 13, guys in their 40s, 40 years old, I was going hey, through like, a massive no, growth that's spurt. not the way it is. And like, I didn't know how to take a body for like a preteen so by the time I was 14, I was and six foot two, like 130 pounds. I was a twig. And anytime anybody tapped me, I would fall over. He was excelling. And I just kept getting hurt, getting hurt, getting hurt. He could skate fast. So, you know, he'd gone into Bantam one and one and of my buddies he was like, well, like that. So, you know, like, you've he already could do been it. Why can't I? With me. And we like did a part time like, while I was we no athlete. Hockey, I like, couldn't really skate. I had trouble like C cuts and everything like that. But you work at it. You kept working. And 17 years later, after pushing and working and driving for it, I mean, I ended up in the WHL, as you mentioned. I did some university level, I did some international tournaments. I mean, I did some really, really cool things uh, with my refereeing career, and I'm actually glad I quit when I did because it really opened the door to become a referee. And I mean, I'm retired now, but things have come full circle because I'm working with Hockey Alberta again to do some fitness and nutrition stuff. So it's, it's been great. It's been an awesome journey. I think that's great to hear because your story reminisced myself. I didn't get into hockey until about 10, 11. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to skate. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, I guess I can't skate. I don't. I guess I can't play hockey. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered things like ball hockey later on. But mm-hmm. I think that pass you just take there was great. How did it kind of work getting the WHL? Because I could imagine that the amount of pressure one officiating that league and then there must have been like the tryouts and the process getting in there could have been difficult. It was probably the most challenging and most intimidating experience to get involved with. But once you get there, you realize that that was all a facade because it was all in my head. The guys that you work with are incredible people and they are supportive and they want you to develop and grow and get better. And once you realize that it's more of a community of support, growth, and more of a team then you actually start to succeed and do better. So, you know, while it was scary to do the tryouts for WHL, I mean, going through the tryouts for WHL, it's a whole process. So what happens is, is, you know, if you're in the mid to AAA level or, you know, junior A or something like that, then you apply to go to the WHL development camp. And what they do is they take, I think, 20 prospective WHL linesmen or referees. They put you through the paces. They do some videos. They do some physical training. They do some on-ice testing. They see what you do in like a game situation. So they'll give you an exhibition game in the WHL just to see kind of how you do. And then from there, it's like a whole interview process. So it was a lot of fun to go through that. The first year I tried out, yeah, I didn't get in. And I, I wasn't expecting to. You know, I was a young referee. I think I was doing midget triple a at the time so you know they just said you know what it's not your year and then you know what's funny because i actually ended up losing a bunch of weight the next year because i wouldn't say i was like super heavy but i had gained a lot of weight because of i was going through college university all at the same time so i ended up losing 70 pounds that next season And I went through the camp again and they hired me. And you know, it's funny, Randy, I'd love to tell you the story about how I think I got hired. And I'll still hold this to this day, but I was doing an exhibition game or a preseason game. And this was kind of like my tryout for the second time. And during the end of the first period, there was a little bit of a scrum and I was a linesman. And as I was escorting two players back to their prospective benches, one of them hurled out a racial slur. And 
it caught me off guard. I was like, did I really just hear this? And so I told the referee and the referee ended up calling the penalty. They kicked the kid out of the game. Like we don't take racism lightly as, as we shouldn't. Any organization shouldn't. So when the supervisors heard like who made that call, I think right there, they were like, that's what we need in an official, someone who's going to step up, not be scared, make those proper calls. And, you know, I feel fortunate. I feel very lucky that that actually happened. I mean, it's an unfortunate incident, but the fact that I was there and able to step up and make that call, it was awesome. I was in the league for about four or five years before I retired, but uh, it's something that I'll never forget. Two things right there showed. I think one for anyone listening out there, if you don't make it the first time, keep trying if you really want it because you're saying you were in the best of condition, you really wanted it, and you knew you'd make some changes when you did, it worked out great. The second thing is, I think it just shows integrity in that level where regardless what you're doing, we have to have that standard. I, I know this is a little bit off topic of sports, but that standard human being thing, we see stuff like that or mm-hmm. hear stuff. We got to take it to that level and saying, hey, this is, cannot happen because the WHL is where so teenagers are playing, young adults, 17, 18, 19, 16-year-old playing. The official, they have to show that level of maturity thing. This can't be tolerated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, we saw a huge, again, this is a little off topic, but we saw some big upheaval in 2020 and 2021. And it is important to step up and stand up for what you believe in and stand up for what's right for like who we are as people. So I think any prospective people in the sport, it racism does not belong in the sport of hockey. And I'll just leave it at that. No, that's a hundred percent. I think the other good thing is with the evaluations and trials, at least people now know they're not just pulling random people off the street to officiate that are missing calls. Yeah. When much we hear that on TV when we're at live games. I could imagine the training to be an official because we see the athlete. They're skating at a close to maybe like a hundred miles an hour, going so fast, keeping up. One, I gotta believe you gotta be making sure you need that physical stance that you're strong, but also like the mental stance, making sure you're seeing everything. Cause I could imagine you don't wanna miss anything. You gotta be on your top game to make sure you're calling the right calls and you're not missing any of those. Yeah. Mental cognition is one of the most important things, if not the most important, to be honest. I mean, you could be the fastest official out there, you could be the strongest, but if you're not quick, and you're not studying your rule book, you have no place on the ice, right? You're only as good as your rules. We had some referees who were slow, 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 and they, they would cheat. They would, you know, they would hang back a little bit. They would skate blue line to blue line. They would skate the neutral zone, but they had that mental side of the game and they had that speed to recognize a penalty an offside, whatever it was. And I think that that, in my opinion, is more important than the physical side of things. You know, it's the one thing that I like to teach young referees at this point is know your rule book. Because if you ever get into a confrontation or a strange situation, you have to know exactly what to call in that situation. And that's not to say that we're not going to get it wrong. We're going to get it wrong. We're human beings. And when I hear like sometimes, you know, they're going to get like uh, they're going to replace referees with AI or whatever. I think that's gets rid of the spirit of the game because I don't know. I think it's more interesting when mistakes are made. Like, I know that's weird for an official to say or a past official, but like, 
mistakes are part of it, right? I mean, you're not going to make every pass as a player. Why do you think an official is going to make every single call 100% of the time? You know, I just think knowing that role book is so, so important, though. I agree there as well. I think you see it at players as well. They make mistakes and the miss calls. It, it all evened out over time. Now, speaking of like missing those calls, I could imagine some of the confrontations you get into the players or the coaches with a missed call. I could imagine you got to kind of stand your ground there where they're yelling at you. They're angry. How do you kind of keep that composure and telling the coach or the player, this is the call we made and we're sticking with that? Great question. And, you know, that is one of the biggest things that I'll take out of refereeing is dealing with adversity and dealing with confrontation under pressure. There have been some heated situations where I've had fans throwing things on the ice. And, you know, to this day, like I go back and think about it over and over and over in my head, like, did I make the right call in that situation? My answer is still yes, right? Because based on the information that I had, based what I saw in that situation, I still believe I made the right call. So I'd say the one thing that I'd really learned is, first off, you have to learn to listen, right? Because for a coach of a junior A hockey team, maybe it's their last game of the season. Maybe they missed the playoffs by two points or whatever. And this game was everything to them and they needed. So listening and understanding and having that empathy and that spirit of the game to actually understand where they're coming from. Now, to say that, I mean, there's obviously a line that you have to draw, though, right? So if they become aggressive to the point where it's insulting or they become violent or anything to that end, you have to know when to shut it down. But having two ways of communication, like it it is a two-way street, right? I usually, when I dealt with a confrontation with a coach, I would come over and I would say, Hey, Andy, come on down here. Let's have a chat. Because nothing is worse than if a coach is standing on a bench yelling down at you. That is a power stance. I feel like they are trying to gain some sort of leverage over an official. So if I bring that coach down off the bench, it brings them to my eye level. And then we're men to men, man to woman, whatever. And we are having that face-to-face conversation. We are understanding each other a little bit better. And it's not like me looking up to him because I don't know if you ever watch like a David versus Goliath type thing on a movie where it's like you're watching like this little tiny meek person kind of trying to explain themselves. And No, like we are even, we are the same person. We're at the same level, I should say. That's what I would first do. I'd say, Andy, come on down here. You know, this is what I saw in that certain situation. Like, did you feel that there was something different? Yeah, Justin, I really felt that there was a trip in the corner there and you missed that trip. And I was like, I understand, but I was watching the front of the net where so-and-so was getting cross-checked. So I had to make sure that that person was safe and in control. And if I missed a trip in the corner, I apologize for that, but I was trying to keep your players in front of the net safe. And I think if you admit to your mistakes or if you missed something right off the bat, rather than saying, nope, I didn't see it. And if you close the door like that, like it just doesn't create a good relationship. And that's the one thing that fans really don't see when it comes to the game is that those conversations happen and they happen quite often where, you know, there is more communication. There is more rapport building. There is that side of things rather than just a black and white yes or no kind of thing. I guess that's true as well. I guess as the fans, we don't see kind of what happened behind the closed door before the game as well because as the official, you're working so many games, you kind of get familiar with the players, the coach, the arena, and everything else. So you kind of have to make sure you have that relationship and you're having those conversations. Now, John Tortorella in the NHL, we see him in Famous, his yelling, 
have you ever had kind of an encounter with like maybe something like that where he's just all heated yelling the coaching you're just taking that or yes absolutely and you have to know when to ignore the coach and when to actually have a serious conversation with him if he is upstaging the game to the point where it's an embarrassment then the referee needs to take action but if he's just doing it for upstaging and he's trying to get a little bit of a rise out of his players, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to just take it with a grain of salt, understand that it's just the heat of the game. You know, I may even try to change my position on the ice. So little known trick for referees is if there's a situation where you're on bench side going up and down the ice, maybe you want to switch to the other side. Maybe you do it at the next whistle where you just move to the other side of the ice. That way you can maintain that eye contact, right? But you're not just getting that coach breathing down your neck, right? In that certain situation. So there's little tips and tricks that we can do to make that a little bit safer because we do have a game to focus on at the end of the day. And that's what we're our main focus on. You know, coaches like that that try to upstage all the time. I think that they're trying to take attention away from it and try to place it on themselves. And I don't think that's fair in certain situations. I guess that's true. I never looked at it from that point where the coach is trying to rattle his team, Mm -hmm. where they're just trying to get the emotion out, getting the team going. Because we see on TV, the coach is just giving it to the ref, but because we're not there in front of, we don't kind of see maybe the purpose of it. What about mistakes? Because I go back to a couple of years ago, a game between the Vegas Golden Knights and San Jose Sharks, where there was that five-minute major penalty, I believe, against the Knights, and it mm-hmm. really wasn't a five-minute penalty. What happened if a mistake like that happened official? You called, and you kind of can't change it at the point. Like, what do you kind of do? Okay, that is a good question. And it's really one that's hard to address, to be honest with you. And I just want people to pull back for just a minute and think about what they do on a daily basis at their job. So if they're, let's say an accountant, right? And say, for example, they accidentally forget to carry the seven. Let's just use that as an example, right? First off, they're making that mistake and they're able to review it. So there's a little bit of grace there. But if they still miss it and then they hand it off to the client or the whatever, right? And it's a big error, then there's going to be repercussion, right? Maybe the boss does something. Maybe something happens with the client and they fire that accountant or something like that. Same thing happens with officials. I don't remember exactly what happened with that San Jose Vegas Golden Knights situation. But those referees get supervised at the end of every single game. In-call decisions, in-call penalties actually make a decision on their playoff rankings and their playoff assignments. So that was playoffs, right, Randy? Yes. Yeah. So that's the thing is if I'm not mistaken, and and if I am, I apologize because I don't have my facts straight on this one, but I don't think they received another assignment after that game. If a big mistake is made, you have to live with it in the moment. You have to try to move on, forget, try to deal with repercussions in that moment. And then if there does need to be any sort of discipline by, you know, supervisors or whatever, then that's going to happen. And that's going to happen in loss of assignment. And that's the thing. That's the driver for officials is getting the Stanley Cup final. That's our goal. We want to get playoffs and we want to get the final round or even the final game. That's our goal. That's exactly why we do it. And so we don't take mistakes lightly at all. Like a mistake is a blemish on us, you know, and when I go back to a couple of minutes ago, when I said that mistakes are going to happen, I think we try so hard not to make them, but we're only, you know, 99% of the time going to make that right call. Some referees a little bit less, whatever. I'm not going to get into the numbers, but there is repercussions. Let's just say that. 
But I guess we kind of look at it where what happened that fans to official, like how are they still calling it? But again, we don't see the back beat and stuff with that. Yeah. That's good knowledge to know that they're ranked on. You always look at the saying, you're always saying how this guy's still officiating, but I guess they need them for the regular season because of so many games. But when it comes to big game, you want the best. Yeah, and that's, As, and that's the thing. Like, we don't even know what it's like behind closed doors. We don't know what their uh, relationship is like with the players on the ice. Like, w- again, we may say that, hey, Justin St. Pierre is the worst official that I have ever seen, but he has a great rapport with the coaches. You know, he is able to talk down the hothead on the team and keep him out of the penalty box, which the team respects. You know what I mean? So there's certain things that these referees that maybe the fans are like, why is he on blah, 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 blah. But there's little intricacies on the ice and like what they did in the past game between these two teams, like the history. What did he do in that situation to make the next game a success to set up the next officials? So it really is a big cat and mouse game that I hope people really understand that there are little things that make a big difference. As a fan, for me, that's important to know, kind of now watching the game and having that opinion to say, how did that kind of work? Now, the official, in your opinion, the offside goaltender review in the NHL, where now they're like kind of growing it down to a microscope. Mm -hmm. Do you think there should be more of that, less of that? Or because I understand like some of those outrageous calls, Mm -hmm. those are the ones that should be turned over. But kind of like those nitty gritty calls, do you think that's where like a line needs to be drawn or? I think it's really, there's a lot of gray area there. I think it's good for the game because it provides an, an extra layer of accountability. In that same breath, I also feel that it slows down the momentum of the game. Right. Because, you know, if you have a goal and then, you know, that the coach does a challenge and then the linesman have to go back and look at if it was offside, you know, that really, really just slows down and it takes kind of the breath out of your lungs. It just feels like it's really slows down the game. So to that end, I don't think it's so hard. I'm for and I'm against it. Like, I'm really on the fence about it. I think it slows down the momentum, but I think it does apply that level of accountability that we do need because I always look back at that one situation like do you remember when Mick Magoo was calling the game and Curtis Joseph came out of the net threw his helmet off and slid on the ice and Mick Magoo was like stay back and he kind of crashed into him and they both fell on the ice like it was just like that stuff you certainly need to review because we don't want those travesties going on anymore you know what I find it a little inconsistent though right sometimes with those goalie challenges like how come that one was a goal and that one was disallowed? It just seems like there is a little bit of inconsistency when it comes to that side of things. But again, it's one of those one in a million things. Like he was an eighth of an inch inside the crease at the time of that goal, you know? And in this situation, he was an eighth of an inch outside of the crease at the time of that goal. And, you know, the wind caught his glove. And I I don't know, man, like it's, it's good and bad for the game. I think it's fine where it is. If it goes any further, though, I might change my opinion on that. I think that's a fair point. I do agree. I think like there needs to be a point because there's so many now where they get so those nitty gritty where there's so many people around the net and they're just crashing and you don't know what happened, who's getting pushed, who's not. And sometimes like a five minute delay where it's so yeah. momentum. And then you look at it, you're just like, how is that a goal and how is it yeah. not a goal? And I think unless they kind of maybe change the definition of what that clarifier kind of the rules regarding that, because I look back to in the, in the 99 playoff where the infinite bread in the skate yep. with Dominic Hasek, where they changed the rule because of yep. that. 
But now it's like, here's the rule. Like, how are you going to kind of adapt the changes Mm -hmm. if you're getting so many of these tight ones? And I think the last thing you want, what if that, like the goal that calls in the final and you want that to be a deciding goal? Yeah, that's the thing, man, is it's, it's so hard. And like, I remember reading the rule book. It was like, there were some really strange situations in there. Like, what do you do if a player is on a breakaway and his skate becomes untied and then the goalie pushes the net off its moorings and then throws a stick at the player? And you're thinking, like, what? This would never happen. But it did happen, and that's why it's in the rule book, right? So Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, we have to take these rule changes and just – take them with a grain of salt, try to give our best interpretation as we can with it, be on the same page with, you know, the video review room and Toronto, as we call it, right? Be on the same page with that. You know, what is the interpretation of this rule? Have constant meetings with them. And this is what these GM meetings are all about. You know, we have to understand what these rules are so that we can pass it down to our coaches and our players. So I think there just there needs to be a level of communication. It shouldn't be all in the officials' hands or all in the, the coaches' hands. The GMs have to step up as well. You know, it's a really intricate sport. You know, as much as we don't want it to be, it is. Only time will tell if the changes they make going forward are going to be better for the worst or for the end. Now, with your days officiating, I believe you officiated from October 2005 to about June 2015. Am I correct? Or a little bit off? Oh, let me think. Let me think. Okay. So I did it when I was, yeah, I got to think of the years here. Okay. So I started when I was 12. So that is. I mean, for the WHL. Oh, the WHL. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. So I did the WHL from, so I. Retired in 16. I retired in 16. So I started in 2011. So 2011 to 2016 is when I did did, did the WHL. Perfect. Now, during that time, do you kind of saw players playing that were younger now in the NHL? Because I could imagine maybe seeing guys like Leon Draisaitl, Ryan Nugent Mm -hmm. Hopkins, Tristan Jari, Morgan Riley, Shea Theodore, just to name a few of them. I know there's so many, but... Even a Calgary product, Braden Point, like just seeing them, they're developing, just seeing them close up. Mm-hmm. Did you kind of see like, wow, this guy's going to be a star? Like, what the kind of the sense? Oh have? man, okay. One of the players that I knew had it, Matt Dumba. I watched that kid since Bantam AAA. He was destroying kids with body checks, middle of the ice. He had the best lineup for a body check that I have ever seen. At any level, you know, he's playing for, I think it's the Minnesota wild now. Yeah. So he is just, I loved watching that guy play and his dad, Charlie was just a gem of a, you know, he was just a sweet guy, you know, and I loved watching Matt Dumba. Josh Morrissey was another player that I watched as a kid as well. Watched him go through the ranks at two WHL. Now he's with the Winnipeg Jets. Braden point. I didn't think he was going to make the NHL. I got to be completely honest with you. He was small and I like to think that I had a little piece in his development and you know, this is completely untrue, but I'm going to hold on to this. This is my claim to fame in the NHL, but (laughs) it was Bantam AAA or Midget AAA. I don't remember, but he, he came up and he lined up for the draw and I was the linesman in the situation. Right. And he came up and he put his stick down, but I don't remember. He was either the home team or the visiting team, or he was the attacking team or the defending team. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but the rule was that 
the uh, attacking team had to put their stick down first or the, the home team had to put their stick. I don't remember what it was, but I was like, hey, why don't you wait until he lines up first and then you can see his stance and then you can adjust. Also, you have to watch me and you have to figure out how to time me. And I feel like that changed his face-offs after that because he was so eager to just get the puck, put the puck down, Justin. Like, I just want to play. I just want to go. Like, he was really hungry. But it's like those little tricks where you have to time the linesman on the face-off. You have to watch their hand to, like, watch you know, when their hair stands up so that they, you know when they're going to drop the puck. Like, it's little strange things like this that make the really, really strong players out there. Yeah, I saw so many players. It was great to see... At such an elite level, um, some really, really great kids, you know, and I was just happy to be part of it and happy to be in that presence for sure. That just sounds awesome to me. And I think for you, just think, giving that little point of fishing, I think that when he was in the final last year, probably scoring some of those overtime goals or winning those big face-offs, I could imagine you could have a f- smile on your face <laughs> thing. yeah, I taught yeah. that. <laughs> you know, I think that, yeah, it's a little selfish, but, you know, it's a little pat <laughs> on my back. Eh? That is good. Now, with any big games you called, how would how would that feel? Like, were you calling any of the WHL championship games, made big playoff game sevens at all? Or Yeah, I mean, I did tons of big games. You know, to this day, I'm trying to recall some of the biggest games that I officiated. And to be honest with you, Randy, they weren't in the WHL. They were not really? in the WHL. You know, because we think that because the game is faster, that it's harder that is completely untrue. That is not true at all. Because when you get to that level, just like anything, you've been doing it for a long time. You know how to read the game a little bit better. Your positioning is a little bit better. Your anticipation is a little bit better. So you know when like the big fights are going to happen or you know when the dump-ins are going to happen from just past the red line so you can get out of the way as an official. You know when there's a big hip check coming. You can read that stuff. It's the levels like I'd say Bantam AAA to maybe Junior A. That's where it's like, because there's still such a mix of player levels, even though, yeah, it is, you know, Junior A hockey. There's still a guy who still doesn't skate all that well, you know, for argument's sake. I'd find those levels. I think the hardest game I ever skated was in the the Midget AAA Max tournament in Calgary. It's a big AAA. It's an international tournament that we have here in Calgary. And it was a team from Russia versus a team from Red Deer. That was the fastest game I have ever done in my entire life, bar none. Bar none. And like to this day, I don't care. You put me in an NHL game, and I did a few NHL exhibition games just as a linesman for like training camp. And I remember seeing Curtis Glencross and Jerome Ginla and, you know, Corey Sarich and all those players on the ice, but they have a finesse about their game and they're smart about it rather than try to race up and down the ice. This midget triple A game was that. I remember there was no breaks. I was exhausted by the end of it. It was crazy. Uh, that was a big one. That was a, um, I'd have to say that's a semifinal game that I did there. I did league championships for midget triple A. I did several playoff rounds for junior A hockey. Um, I got to playoffs for university. I didn't go far in university, but um, yeah, I did playoffs a couple of rounds in the WHL as a linesman. So I'd have to say, yeah, there were a couple of, you know, big, big hockey games. I had my most fun, to be honest with you, in midget AAA hockey. As, as weird as that sounds, like, yeah, you would think that maybe it's the WHL. But, you know, it, it was much more fun because 
I don't know. There was something about that midget triple A level that just you saw the drive of the players just more than the WHL for some reason. And that's no discredit to the WHL. The WHL is an amazing league, right? And it developed some amazing players. But, you know, there were some kids that you knew in midget triple A that wouldn't move on. And they were with their best friends. And you could see that relationship that they built knowing that, hey, my buddy's going to the WHL. I might end up in junior B. This is our last time together. So I don't know. You know, it was great. It was, it was awesome all around, though. I could see that. And I also see as well, like a different level, different ages for the kids as well, where Bantam, still young, they're still hungry. They still, a lot of the kids probably think I'm going to be the next Sidney Crosby, mm-hmm. Connor McDavid out there. And I think they're just putting their heart out for their family to say, I'm going to win. Where I think the WHL is a little bit more of that professional yes. standard where they're at that higher standard. They want to show that respect, showing their professionals, mm-hmm. where the kids, they're just out there having fun, saying, We want to win. This totally. Game. Yep. Justin, I want to get into know a little bit about you working with Alberta Hockey. What does your role intake working with nutrition for the coaches and what kind of your role you'll be? Yeah, so that, that's actually a really good question. I think, you know, I want to go back to my retirement from Hockey Alberta and I think because I think that really plays into it. So a little bit about me is uh, hockey refereeing was not a full time job for me. It doesn't pay enough to make it a full-time job. It was definitely a a, a love thing and I love doing it. But, you know, it got to a point where my professional career, I worked in the news media. I just received a new job as the morning show producer for one of our highest rated television shows here in Calgary. Well, what that meant is that my shift would start at two in the morning. My alarm went off at 12.45 in the morning. That meant I couldn't do games at night anymore because I would be in bed at like 5.30, 6 o'clock just so that I could get that six hours of sleep. You know what I mean? So I actually had to hang up the skates. I was so sad when I had to do it. It didn't feel like the right time for me. And at the same time, my wife and I were starting a family. We had, I think we just had our first baby at the time. So it was time, but it didn't feel like time the right time, if that makes any sense. But, um, you know, here we are four years later during that time when I went from retirement to now, you know, I was also a part-time personal trainer. And so I filled my fitness time with, or the time that I was doing refereeing, I filled that time now with being a fitness coach. And then I also became a nutrition coach because I'm just so passionate about it. And fitness and nutrition is what made me excel as a hockey referee. So I was training people on the side, had a great time doing that while doing my full-time job in media. But, uh, you know, it just had so happened that uh, Hockey Alberta reached out to me because they saw one of my posts on LinkedIn. And I put something up about, here's how to train from home because of all the COVID lockdowns or something like that. Like it was something simple. And one of the guys from Hockey Alberta was like, I love this post. We're thinking about doing this from Hockey Alberta and we want you. And I was like, just so humbled, right? Because now the role is we have the opportunity to, to build some amazing referees in the province. Um, and that's something that Hockey Alberta, the referees committee has identified as a big need. You know, talent isn't just going to get you there. You know, the mental capacity isn't going to get you there. It's a combination of both, right? So if we can highlight the physical side of things and the nutrition and how important it is, you know, I think that's most important. And they wanted someone who was actually in the role. Right. If you have someone who had no idea what referees deal with and it's just like, oh, yeah, here's your meal plan. Here's your workout plan. That wouldn't make any sense. You know, I did it for 17 years and I think that's why they reached out to me. And I'm really excited to help train the next level of officials. And the big goal is going to be identifying 
younger officials, like the ones who are doing Bantam 1 or, you know, all the way up to Midget AAA or even Junior A, who have, you know, some really good starting skills, something that they obviously identified that they're a good official. But how do we take them now to the next level? How do we get them to the WHL? You know, and it's just these little fitness, nutrition, little mindset tricks that we are going to really work on for the next, I don't know, we're going to see. Right now, it's just, it's kind of a pilot project for the first year, but it sounds like they want to do this long term. We're going to see how it goes, though. That sounds amazing. I liked how the full circle, you started younger as a player, thinking it wasn't going to work out, then a ref, and then got to the level. I like. I love how that full story comes about. You never know what's going to happen in life. What is kind of your hope for teaching these young officials the, the importance of, like, what is it kind of like if one thing you could pass along to them? The one thing I can say is that I don't want to get you to the NHL. I just want you to make you a better person. And I want you to get 1% better than you were yesterday. If you think about an outcome when you're going through this journey, you will not succeed. You will, in fact, fail. But instead, if you think about what you can do daily, weekly, monthly, and think about the process of getting there rather than you deserve an outcome, that's going to set you far apart from other officials. So, you know, just enjoy the games that you are doing. If, if it's not the level you believe that you're at, well, you know, just try to enjoy the moment that it is. Do the work outside of the, the rink that you can. And that's, you know, can be exercise and nutrition, can be getting to bed a little bit earlier, drinking more water, you know, and keeping it really basic for them. And I think that that's really important. So making them a better person and maybe 1% better at, at refereeing. That is great to hear. Justin, before I let you go, I always like to ask anyone who comes on the show, what is your favorite hockey moment? Something you watched on TV, maybe the flame, the devils, maybe you working in the media or maybe your time oh, officiating. What man, you caught me on the spot. Um, oh, I got it right here. When Saku Koivu came back from cancer. I think that's an inspiring Ugh. moment because a lot of people thought he was totally talking. like that to me was yeah. probably one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen. Or, you know, another one that comes to mind was when Matt Stajan scored that shootout goal or that penalty shot goal after his son just died, like just tears at my heartstrings. And he pointed to the sky like this one's for you, buddy. And it was just ugh. Like, as a parent now, it just tears me apart, you know. So I think that those two moments were huge. No, that is true. Justin, I appreciate you joining us. I've enjoyed this episode, getting a lot of insight on the other side rather from the player, the official, how it all worked. Thank you so much for coming on the episode. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Randy. I really appreciate the time. Like, it, it's, it's always great to talk about refereeing. And, you know, if anybody is out there listening and is like, maybe I do want to become a referee, do it. Do it. You will become a better person. You'll work on your confidence skills. You will work on your confrontation skills. And, you know, if, if you're not ready to go to that higher level, then that's okay too. Just we need referees and we need people, you know, who are willing and, to, you know, to learn the rule book. So, you know, join your local referee branch where you can. That was great to hear. Well, maybe hopefully we'll get to see some great referees out there. Thank you so much. Okay. Justin. Thanks, Randy.